You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, there's a big push to get thousands of public school elementary students back in the classroom for face-to-face learning over the next three weeks. We've been featuring some schools which have been able to do that some since January. This morning, we talked to School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto about the transition and about how the Department of Education's budget is faring in this legislative session. Kishimoto began visiting school campuses this week. We caught up with her early this morning. Our elementary schools are going to be rolling back all of the K-6 students starting this week all the way through the next three weeks. But we have some schools that have brought back all students since January. So I'm going out to visit schools to see how that's going. Um, I just see a lot of great instruction happening. Teachers have uh, safety and health protocols that are in place and are solid and the atmosphere in the school is just extremely positive. I think kids, teachers, all of us have a new appreciation for in-person learning. I know you have so many schools to cover but but can you tick off some of the campuses where they've been able to get uh, all the students back in the classroom? Noelani Elementary was a school that I went to visit and almost every student is back on the 29th which is next Monday. Every last student will be back in the classroom. What's interesting about that school is that we had about 30% of parents who wanted to do distance learning and have changed their mind. So the school is full. We also have Pu'uhale Elementary. I was there yesterday. Every student's been back since January. The teachers asked to go ahead and move forward early, and it's working well. And then we have Hahaioni Elementary. They've been back since February. So while we are asking all elementary schools to be back in person over the next three weeks, we do have schools that started in January, some in February, uh, and some are starting now. Uh, we have 94,000 elementary students just K through six. So this is quite a lift, but this is really exciting to have school buses back on the road, to have kids in classes, uh, and to be able to provide that in-person support and instruction. So a lot of this is possible because of the CDC guidance the three feet versus six feet. There are some schools where the enrollment is probably high and they're just you know, nervous about the space. Oh, absolutely. Makes a, a huge difference to be able to move from six feet to three feet. And, and the guidance does allow us to go even lower than, than three feet. What's important is the layered mitigation strategy. You know, the absolute, the non-negotiable is wearing a mask, washing our hands, um, taking breaks, making sure there's air circulation in the classroom. And then we layer in additional strategies such as uh, physical distancing to the, to the greatest extent possible, you know, making sure that there are healthy mass breaks uh, with with more than six feet, making sure that the common areas like the cafeteria and other meeting spaces, that we're all facing forward, that there is enough spacing. That makes a difference in terms of how many students come back. Logistically, it's still a challenge, and I really applaud my principals and teachers and staff who are doing a great job making this work. At this point now, you know, a lot of the teachers have been vaccinated, and, you know, there's a better degree of confidence about the face-to-face. Our vaccination program has gone great. Every teacher and every staff member and leader that wanted a vaccine and signed up for it has been vaccinated. Department of Health has been a great partner, along with other uh, healthcare partners in Hawaii, have, have really provided the quick access. And we'll continue to look at, you know, additional vaccines that are available and getting the word out for those who may not have gotten the vaccine. You know, we have the interesting conversation nationally right now about 
whether, you know, children should get vaccinated. Should we focus on, you know, 16-year-olds and older and so forth? So we know there'll be continued changing guidance, but we're excited that everyone who wanted the vaccine at this point has gotten the vaccine. And where do you think you're going to have challenges? Uh, You know, what complexes maybe have just large enrollments that just don't have enough space? Every complex area has, you know, one or two schools where they have large enrollments and or they have small common spaces. So their cafeterias may be too small, even with three waves of lunch. And so we don't want schools starting their lunch hour at nine in the morning. That doesn't make sense. And so they're using all covered spaces. One of the schools that I went to visit earlier this week actually is using one of their gymnasium spaces, which is an outdoor gymnasium. So it's partially open air. They're using that as a second cafeteria. So schools are doing a lot of different strategies to really make this work and make sure that kids have a school day that that is as normalized as possible so that they can enjoy the full school day in terms of supports, lunch, and instruction. Are you still doing breakfast on campus? Oh, yes, absolutely. We have some schools that have now transitioned from being community hubs for pickup of meals back to breakfast and lunch at the school site. Our elementary schools primarily have transitioned back to their normal feeding schedule, which is really important not to introduce kids from across the district into their school site, again, to keep that you know, Ohana community in place and keep that safety protocol. Meanwhile, our secondary schools have taken up and are now those community hubs for feeding, you know, and are servicing several schools. And so we really appreciate the balance of all of our schools within complexes working together. And you mentioned the bus service. How did that all play out? It's a combination of everything. It's, you know, making sure that windows are open, that we have airflow in there, that kids are, and the bus driver has a mask on, there's hand sanitizers on the bus. Uh, We're encouraging parents that can drop off and pick up their children to do so, so that we have less number of students on the buses. At the same time, we know school bus transportation is critical for our families. We're adding runs where we need to add those runs. Uh, But we do have a lot of families who are opting to still drop off and pick up their child. And so they're not participating in the bus transportation for this quarter. There are fewer riders on the bus for this quarter. And as we transition into next school year, we're going to have to see how that works. The challenge in Hawaii is, again, we have a fixed number of buses and bus drivers. And as tourism opens up, we're all competing for the same bus drivers. And so for the rest of this quarter, we're in great shape. Into next school year, this is an area we'll keep watching very carefully. We are in the the last month of the legislative session. What's your budget looking like? You know, our budget is still a challenge. We are we are having conversations with the legislature, with the governor. House Bill 200, you know, still has some challenges for us. There are 288 less FTEs or less positions, and that impacts us. Uh, There's money attached to those positions that that we are not seeing in that budget. This is on top of the $41 million in cuts in the governor's budget and on top of the $100 million that was cut from our base budget this year. We also saw budget sheets that, that 
surprised us with this budget where our entire IT department is not funded in this budget. We're looking for answers to that. We know there's conversations on the Senate side today, and we're hoping there's clarity about what's happening on that front. So yes, there's a lot still to be solved. Uh, we are appreciative of the federal funding we're going to get. Uh, but that federal funding is not meant to supplant. It's meant to really address the new learning needs and, and operational challenges of COVID. So we do need a strong base budget still. And so we'll continue to work with our legislators. On the IT issue, though, I mean, coming off all this remote learning and the need to close this digital divide, you know, how does that work? We're not completely sure about that. The, the first time I uh, learned about that and saw that was just a few days ago when the budget sheets were posted. I was very surprised at that. It's something I do not expect to have to be worrying about right now. There are other challenges in the budget. Not only do we rely heavily on our instructional technology, but the whole business side of the house of how we process pay, our financial management system, all of that is heavily reliant on technology. So we know there, there's going to be some answer. Uh, we're hoping that this is all going to be reinstated and it's going to show up on the Senate side. Uh, so we'll continue again to work with our legislators. I, this is, this is a, a work that we are aggressively growing on the technology front, uh, and it's, it's work that I hope that we're getting support and that we don't have to worry about. That was School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto talking about her concerns as lawmakers fine-tune the state budget this week and as our keiki begin returning to the classroom over the next few weeks. Kishimoto is very concerned that now is not the time to cut funding for IT services and reduce full-time employees during the challenges of a teaching shortage. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and galleries and courtyards open during extended weekend evening hours. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Hawaiian fishing village of Milolii on Hawaii Island is on its way to achieving herd immunity against COVID-19. This past weekend alone, nearly half of the residents in this remote South Kona community received their coronavirus vaccine. HPR reporter Ku'ubehi Hiraishi joins us with more. Aloha. Aloha, Catherine. Milolii, one of Hawaii's last Hawaiian fishing villages did get their vaccines uh, over the weekend. So 120 of Milii's more than 300 residents received the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine at a mobile vaccination clinic. 
for those who may not be familiar with Milo'i, it's about an hour's long drive from Milo'i to the nearest city center or hospital, right? So the idea of getting a vaccination or getting a vaccine in their hometown community was a nice surprise. The pandemic found its way to Milo'i back in September. Uh, we might all remember there was a, a small outbreak of about a dozen residents in Milo'i of COVID-19. And so uh, the community at the time was very well aware of how isolated they were in terms of being able to access health care under those circumstances. And if the outbreak had uh, gotten worse to some extent, uh, the possibility of uh, these residents getting the care because they are so far away from a lot of uh, the medical centers. So having that sort of at the back of uh, the minds of community leaders when the vaccine started to roll in, I think is a big uh, reason why uh, they were able to make this mobile vaccination clinic work. Yeah, you uh, want to make it easy for people. Exactly. And, and Kaimi Kaupiko uh, is a 38-year-old resident of Milo'i. His uh, family has been uh, part of the village for generations. And he's a community leader there who really worked with Congressman Kaili Ikahele and uh, Kimo Alameda at the Bay Clinic to make uh, this happen. Here's uh, Kaupiko explaining what uh, went down. We're fortunate to allow people over 18 to get vaccinated. Him, like We didn't have to go to the CDC website to fill anything out. They provided all the paperwork, the information about us getting vaccinated, if we have any allergies and, and so forth, so we are okay to take right. it. That was the main thing. It was pretty, pretty fast. It was safe. And then kind of wow. you know, rallied the Ohanas down here to you know, to tell them it's safe and we should be fine. And I encourage them to, you know, take the shot. Now, Copico did say, like many communities uh, across the state, that there was some hesitation. There were families uh, who weren't entirely convinced that they needed the vaccination. Uh, there were families that uh, or individuals that did refuse. Uh, but that 120 out of more than 300, that's nearly half. And so that idea, at least from Kimo Alameda over at the Bay Clinic, is that Given the number of residents who have already gotten the vaccine through their work sites, paired with this 120, has really taken them close to that 80% herd immunity um, in terms of protecting the community from future outbreaks. Uh, navigating the world of vaccines, I think, for anyone has been a headache. Have you gotten your vaccine? Yes, I did. I had to drive to Nanakui <laughs> to get it because, <laughs> yeah, otherwise I would have had to wait for an, a whole month. But Someone told me, oh, there's uh, slots. You need people to sign up. So I was like, oh, okay. Right. And finding out how to do this and if, I, if I'm eligible and things like that is even, uh, I think, more of a task in these isolated communities. Uh, Milo'i, very limited, if any, Wi-Fi or Internet to access uh, that news on a daily basis. If they are leaving their community and uh, coming across county bulletins or anything on the radio where they'd get that information, very rare. And, and so what I think uh, we've all come to, to learn about these isolated communities is that they're very vulnerable to a COVID-19 uh, outbreak because of the, the lack of these services. So when you talk about bringing a mobile vaccination clinic to some places rural as, as Milo'i, uh, Kimo Alameda, CEO of, of Bay Clinic, had uh, sort of explained what it took. It was a logistical challenge, he says. First, we got to get the vaccines in a portable freezer. And then for us, you know, we're, we're taking staff down. It takes uh, two hours from Hilo to get to Middle East. It's a five-mile 
uh, hike down the hill, and there's no electricity. So, you know, we had to take generators, electrical cards, gasoline. We had to take special Wi-Fi equipment to access the Internet. That means we have to take laptops. So we have to kind of replicate a clinic in a halal, in a, in a pavilion, basically. And mm. we have to make sure it's staffed with the appropriate uh, physicians with the credentials, vaccinators, nurses. Right, and a big clinic, I should mention, is one of uh, 14 federally qualified health centers across the state uh, who have been tasked with targeting the, the most vulnerable uh, populations like Miloli'i. So isolated, not a lot of access uh, to information or to uh, health care. And so a lot of the Bay Clinic's work right now is figuring out how to reach other uh, isolated communities. And when I think uh, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of places like Kalapana uh, out in Pune, so far away from city centers. And uh, this mobile vaccination sort of model that Bay Clinic has come up with is something that Alameda at least says is a template for them as they go out to other communities on the Big Island. Hawaii County uh, right now, as of today, has administered more than 82,000 uh, vaccines so far, and these are mostly for essential workers and kupuna. They have gone down to the age of 55, so adults at the two hospitals on the Big Island Adults the age 55 or older are eligible to receive uh, these vaccines. Uh, Hawaii County spokesman Cyrus John, uh, Jonathan says vaccinations aren't the end-all or cure-all, and, and he's encouraging social distancing and a good hygiene as they move through getting as many people vaccinated as, as possible. Here's Jonathan. You know, on an average weekend, we are, are getting close to 4,000, 5,000 vaccinations a weekend. Throughout the week, O'Muller Pod's getting, you know, up to 500 every every day or every other day. And so, you know, we're moving towards the ultimate goal. But I think as of yesterday, Hawaii County is at about a 25% uh, vaccination rate at this point. Right. So 25% of the big island has uh, been vaccinated, according to Jonathan. And, you know, he says it's at this point, it's really about supply. A lot of the systems that they have in place for max vaccinations are working and are improving as they go. Uh, I just heard news today of uh, I think it was a batch of Johnson and Johnson vaccines that had actually uh, failed to meet the, the quality standards to go out. So these supply sort of hiccups. Uh, according to Jonathan, is really uh, the only thing that's preventing them from really getting to more uh, of the uh, most vulnerable communities on the Big Island. I hope that Johnson & Johnson supply wasn't meant for us. <laughs> was <laughs> it? Do we know? I, I'm, I'm actually not too sure. I, I saw the headline and maybe the lead, but, um, you know, what we have heard stories of vaccines not, you know, being used properly or stored properly. And that's even a bigger challenge, I think, when you're talking about, as uh, Alameda had said, taking these vaccines out to these rural communities, hour or two hour long drives. Yeah, well, thank you so much for the story. Mahalo. We've been talking to HBR's Ku'ube Hirishi. To find her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Energy, committed to helping businesses reduce energy use during the pandemic. Its Energy Advantage program offers LED lighting upgrades for small businesses. HawaiiEnergy.com slash Energy Advantage. Hi, I'm Lulu Garcia Navarro. There is a saying that's attributed to Socrates that goes, I know that I know nothing. With every story, reporters at NPR and this station aim to get to the root of what the story is, not what we think it is. And then we report what we learn. Support the journalism you know you can trust. Give to this station today. Become a sustaining member at $10 a month at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, this week we saw two longtime bakeries close, and now we have to prepare for the shutdown of two Sears stores on Oahu and in Hilo. We decided to take a walk down memory lane to a time before there were the brick-and-mortar stores. Remember getting the Sears catalog? Did you pour over the pages during the holiday edition? You know, we reached out to K-Day, retired leasing agent for Ala Moana Shopping Center, to help put the retail landscape in context as we remember the early days of Sears in Hawaii. We were then and still are so remote, and this is why Hawaii is still considered under-retailed. It's just because we're so remote and it was not easy for stores to establish operations here. And that's why catalog shopping was a big deal, you know, up until the, the 40s and the 50s when stores started to establish here. And what, what were your memories of the Sears catalog? We had it, of course. It was something that we anticipated, looked forward to. And we would pick out our school clothes for the year from the catalog. And I can remember my mother and my grandmother filling out the order forms that were in the catalog and mailing them in. And then at, at some point in time, there was a store. Uh, it was a storefront with a counter at the Kahului Shopping Center in Maui. I was born and raised on Maui. And uh, there was a counter with a couple of ladies behind the counter who were taking orders from Sears or Sears out of their catalog. And I imagine they they mailed them in because there was no uh, email fax or any any Internet back in the day. But it was a way, another way that they processed orders out of the catalog to make it more efficient for the local customers. Yeah, and I guess when you think of where we're at today, you know, that was the, I guess, the early Amazon, right? <laughs> Yes, it was, you know, and that it was uh, just as much fascination from the point of view of, you know, people who lived in an island community as, as there is anywhere now to, to see what's available and what's new and exciting and fashionable, et cetera. And you spent many years there at Ala Moana as a leasing agent, and you were fortunate enough to be able to compile a book about its 60th anniversary. Can you share some of the Sears stories that, uh, that that you found in your research? Well, of course, Sears was the original anchor for the shopping center. And had it not been for that deal that was struck by the Dillingham Company, actually Hawaiian Land was a subsidiary of Dillingham who owned the property. Had we not struck that deal, the shopping center might never have happened because they needed an anchor store. So uh, developers have been seeking other anchors. They talked to, of course, Lee House and McInerney and some big major uh, mainland uh, fashion department stores like Marshall Fields to open up a department store here. But they could not get the deals to happen, again, because it's such a remote location. And it's very difficult for national change to support one location in such a remote location, especially back then when when, uh, the merchandise came in by ship. 
So they approached Sears, and Sears, of course, had the big uh, store uh, on Baratania Street in Pavah. And um, eventually they ended up making a deal with Sears. And the reason they were able to do it was because at the time, Sears, as well as the downtown merchants like Liberty House McInerney and all the small merchants who operated downtown and in Pavaa, their business was being somewhat affected because their business originated when there was public transit, when there was the, the trolleys, the HRT trolley cars used to come from the suburbs into the city, and they were stopped in Pavaa by Sears as well as downtown. So that's how people shopped. And then in the 20s and 30s and 40s, more and more people started getting automobiles, and that was evolving into the major means of transportation. And that changed things for shopping because there wasn't any parking downtown or in Pava. So when the developers came up with the idea to do a shopping center, it was really to centralize retail in one location. All Moana offered acres and acres of free parking, which yes. is really critical and an abundance of it. And so Sears at the time was beginning to experience the fact that their parking at Baratania Street was very inadequate. So their manager greatly supported the idea of moving to Ala Moana, but the Sears corporate people apparently did not. You know, it was such a profitable store that their thought was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the, the manager, Mr. Seeker, Morley Seeker, who's kind of a famous guy, an old-time retailer, he felt that it was the right thing to do because he knew he was running out of parking. So the deal, as it turned out, was that Hawaiian Land, the developer, bought the Sears property from Sears and moved Sears over to the Ala Moana site. And part of the deal was they had to uh, promise Sears that they would not lease that site to another retailer because, you know, they didn't want to have competition. And shortly thereafter, um, Hawaiian Land sold it to the city and county of Honolulu because they were at the time looking for a larger uh, location for their police department headquarters. Yes. As you know, the police department was there for many years until they moved some years ago to the current uh, location. Well, I remember uh, to downtown. I remember seeing the escalator there, and <laughs> I think it was one of the first escalators in Honolulu. And then I remember the terrazzo floors and thinking it was very strange in a police headquarters. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. So that was how the deal happened. They uh, So Sears, um, in my book, we actually have pictures of the groundbreaking of Sears and the construction of the building, you know, back in 1957 and 58. So it was really a fascinating time. And nothing like this had ever been done, certainly in Hawaii. Well, there are some small shopping centers and strip malls here, but nothing on this scale. Your book talks about the peanut lady. Share with our listeners yes. what that was all about. <laughs> well, she was a peanut vendor who sold boiled peanuts outside of the Sears store at Pavaa. And she was a greatly beloved person that people loved, admired, and respected. And so when the deal was being struck to move Sears to Ala Moana Center, Mr. Seeker, the manager, said that he wanted to ensure that this lady was allowed to sell her peanuts at the mall. Well, the developers thought, well, that's not, you know, we're not going to allow that at the mall, you know, because they're trying to create a certain image or whatever. Well, Seeker was adamant. He was a very kind person, and he also had great admiration for this lady. And so he insisted, and he even threatened to pull the deal if, if they didn't allow this. So in the end, they did, and she sold her penis there for many years until she retired. 
And talk about what you've seen at the mall because, you know, there, well, the day came when Sears was no more and they decided to uh, tear it down and put up the condos that are there. Yes, well, when Sears left Ala Moana, they wanted to, well, they didn't want to leave. It was one of their most productive stores, but it was also one of their biggest assets. The value of their lease was so good that they sold it back to the developer at the time it was General Growth Properties. And uh, General Growth Properties were uh, eager to take it back because they wanted to develop additional retail on the site. So um, the deal was struck in spite of the fact that it was still a a phenomenally successful store, a much better performer in terms of sales than the rest of the the Hawaii fleet put together. But it was an economic deal from this year because at the time Sears was already struggling financially. Uh, after their Kmart acquisition and, and various other things that happened in business. And so they were looking to increase their cash position, and that was a way to do it. So General Growth immediately embarked on the EVA expansion, which was uh, the expansion of the retail concourse, the addition of Bloomingdale's, and a relocation of Nordstrom. And as you, I guess, reflect back, because you've just recently retired, I don't know, is there anything that you're struck by as we go through this pandemic and and we've watched a lot of retail stores, uh, retail chains shut down? What are you thinking about this point in time? Well, the the, uh, retail landscape is evolving and changing as quite frankly, as it has in the very beginning of time. You know, it, uh, it changes according to what's happening in the society and in the community. Because if you look back, originally, Ala Moana was entirely for the local people. At the time, it was an agricultural economy, sugar and pineapple, um, in, 19, in the mid-50s. And so that's, the, the, that's who was shopping. Uh, in the 50s and 70s, you started to get more tourism. And then you got the influx of Japanese tourism, and that, of course, they became our customers, and you had to cater to their interests, tastes, and purchasing. So that's how retailing evolves. And in the current situation, uh, yeah, it's a a big pullback for the entire business of retailing. The online retailing is getting very strong. But still in all, shopping is a communal and uh, activity it's a social activity, and uh, a lot of people still have trouble shopping for clothing online, notwithstanding the fact that you can return things very easily. It's still not the same experience as feeling, touching, trying, etc. So we feel that retail is going to come back. In what form it comes back or what size remains to be seen. So it's the onus is on all the retailers as well as the developers to be flexible in terms of their business models and what they feature and how they sell to the customer. Right now, it's in a, in a state of contraction, for sure. I have to chuckle because it almost seems like we're going back to the catalog, back to the future, <laughs> right? I mean, I prefer being there in the store and touching and trying on, you know, kicking the tires. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's like we've gone back to the days of ordering uh, sight unseen. It's so true. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting evolution in time. But, you know, again, the developer will have to be flexible. Like, for example, Sears is back at Alamoana Center in completely new form. You know, the, one of the big drivers of the, of the Sears building, uh, business in Alamoana was, was uh, the appliances and the furniture. It was a huge part of their business. And so they came back to us, and they opened um, their own Kapiolani, just selling mattresses, uh, appliances, and, and small appliances, and apparently doing fine. 
Well, you know, we're hearing that, yeah, if they they pull their neighbor island stores and, and they close down. I mean, I don't know. It, will that still continue there at Ala Moana? I guess it's a big question. It is a question, and I can't answer it. I no longer work at the mall, so I'm not party to, you know, what's going on in terms of the deals or the stores. But it just shows you how, how that has evolved. You know, it's funny. The sales were phenomenal at Sears Ala Moana. A lot of it was driven by by tools, craftsman tools, yes. and more appliances, and that sort of thing. Because there's not a whole lot of uh, price or margin in clothing and cosmetics and shoes and, and all the things Sears sold. They they made a lot of money. Um, yeah, it was good quality products. Craft, yes. Yeah, Kenmore Craftsman and Die Hard. I mean, mm-hmm. they're still iconic in terms of the quality of the product. And do you have, I don't know, a favorite Sears memory? Um, myself, you know, uh, many of them. One of them is the, the smell of the popcorn. <laughs> Remember the, the colored candy popcorn yes. they sold in Sears? I didn't like it, you know, and I still don't like it to this day. <laughs> but you could smell it when you walked into Sears. And so that's one of those seminal sort of memories that, that holds on. And uh, just, you know, when you're very, very young, just the, the sheer volume of that building. It was one of the biggest retail stores in Hawaii. And just the sheer volume and the variety of the merchandise. It was just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, yes. The days of Sears. That was Kay Day, long-time leasing agent for Ala Moana Shopping Center, reflecting on Sears' history in the aisles. The retail giant is to officially close its doors at Pearl Ridge and Hilo in about two weeks. And there are signs that the retailer is also moving to eventually shutter to other stores in Maui and Kona as well. And, you know, we did stop by to talk to customers taking advantage of the discounted prices at Pearl Ridge recently. Here's a sampling. We start off with Walter. My memory goes back to when I was a kid. You know, Sears used to be the store to go to for everything. And, you know, I have a lot of fond memories. I've, I've shopped at Sears all, all my life, and they always had pretty good quality products. And uh, I remember back in the day when I was a kid, every year you used to get a catalog. And then, you you know, it's just, it's just like buying out of the internet from Amazon now. Back then it was just the same thing, except you could order from the catalog. If they didn't have it in the store, anything you wanted, you could get at Sears. Yeah, it was a dream book, was a I dream. remember. <laughs> you know? And now Amazon is, you know, basically doing the same thing. Eventually they'll probably buy Sears stores that went bankrupt and move in there and it's the same thing all over again, except I don't know about the quality is very variable, you know, whereas Sears has had good quality products. So yeah. I had really... The Craftsman Tools. Yeah. Ken Moore. Oh, yeah. The, you know, the life guarantee and the Craftsman Tools. You bring it in, no questions asked, they, they, you get it ex- exchanged, you know. So I, I like the quality. Then later on, Kmart started, came right. in, and they became their next competitor. And then, of course, there's always J.C. Penney's. Right. So it's kind of sad because, like, I think about... 10, 15 years ago, I already said, you know what, eventually the way things are going, the only thing you're gonna have left is Home Depot, Walmart, you know, and Sam's Club and and, uh, and yeah. Costco. I ordered a product through the internet and it was totally deceiving. You couldn't see the actual quality of the product and it came from China and it was crap, you know? Try to get my money back, couldn't even get my money back. You know, it's gone. So you're really taking a gamble now buying uh, things, you know, through the oh, internet. Fine. I always went, took my cars uh, to do automotive service. They had good prices on wheel alignments, on tires. 
they had guarantees i brought in tires where they were damaged and had them replaced they keep under warranty and never had a problem with with their automotive repair service these stores are like traditions you know and it's like piece of you is kind of like family is going away and the reason they become that is because of the quality merchandise you know that that they, they made and served and they stood behind their word and everything is so fleeting now and it's just you know sad we were hearing from walter we also talked to fuku he was a man on a mission he wasn't about to lose out on the lifetime warranty for tools Really disappointed about all the stores closing. This is a landmark. We've been coming here since it first opened. I remember the video game room down at the, the bottom floor by the cafeteria. That was back in the early 80s, I believe. And um, yeah, I don't know what to do with my Craftsman tool now, so I'm trying to get this taken care of before they disappear. You have, what do you have there? A Craftsman hand tool. And that's why we buy these, because they have a lifetime warranty. But uh, Lowe's, although they sell Craftsman, won't honor the warranties because you got to buy it from Lowe's. I see. So yeah. you're you're gonna get try and get it repaired or get another one. <laughs> Correct. That is very true. But yeah, we are gonna miss the store. Yeah. And your wife used to work here. Uh, yeah, she used to work in the tea room, which was catalog sales, back when there was catalogs, and she was uh, in a little hole upstairs on the third floor, and um, yeah, they fulfilled orders. And it was for so long, the book that made wishes come true. You've been hearing Sears customers lament the closure of its stores as they recall fond memories of the now ailing retail giant. the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Our reality check today with Honolulu Civil Beat is about how the Hawaii Supreme Court is moving to halt the release of inmates due to COVID-19. Reporter Kevin Dayton is on the line. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. You know, this has been really interesting, you know, to see uh, what has happened uh, because obviously we were all concerned about the, the safety of the inmates and the staff there with covid it, it's been a really tough call for the criminal justice system. Uh, you, you might recall that at the request of the state public defender last year, the state Supreme Court uh, instituted two different programs, basically, to expedite the release of what I guess you could call lower-level offenders, uh, mostly inmates who were um, accused of, these were pretrial inmates for the most part, who were accused of uh, misdemeanors and petty misdemeanors. And normally in the course of doing business, the courts, the courts would release a fair number of those inmates in any case. But what you get sometimes is uh, folks where a low bail is set, um, but the, you know, the well-to-do people who are arrested can bail out, whereas the poorer people cannot, and they tend to sort of back up in the system. That became a huge concern last year, of course, when the pandemic set in, and the concern was uh, you know, in close quarters with overcrowded jails, it's very easy for COVID-19 to spread within the facilities. And the Department of Public Safety started seeing at various different facilities that the case counts going up of COVID. And um, 
public officials got very alarmed by that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, when they started to release some of these um, folks, uh, you know, like at OCCC, there were some reports that some of these folks were out there uh, committing more crimes. There were, and there were definitely some cases in which the people who were released, although they were deemed to be relatively low risk because their, their offenses that they were being held for were pretty minor, misdemeanors, petty misdemeanors, there were at least a couple few, well, more than a couple probably, cases where they did end up reoffending and getting rearrested. And as the prosecutors have said, you know, it, it might not mean be a lot of cases where that happens, but if you happen to be the victim in one of those cases, it's a very serious matter indeed, yeah. Yeah, and our case count is down as more people have been vaccinated and there's been all this testing. Um, there's still some areas, I think Maui Correctional, uh, Community Correctional Center has, what, five cases? Correct. And uh, what's been going on, I mean, the concern was very real. The, the Department of Public Safety says they had 1,967 cases within correctional facilities throughout the pandemic, uh, and there were nine deaths. So this is a very serious risk. So what the court did was order that more people be released, and the incoming city prosecutor, Steve Alm, has challenged that. Um, and we discovered on Wednesday that the court was ready to agree with at least part of his challenge. The court declared that... Um, as, at least uh, offenses against persons would no longer qualify for the expedited release program. So those people will be detained, even if they are uh, petty misdemeanors and misdemeanor offenders. And there was one particular case, uh, too, I think, that that uh, got a lot of attention. Uh, well, there was. That was because the, the city prosecutor put out a press release about it in part. A guy named Brandy Jacob, a 37-year-old, uh, was arrested multiple times for groping women uh, in the downtown area. And uh, city prosecutor Alm was saying that, you know, th this is a guy that who should not have been released repeatedly. I think one, two, three, four, five, six times he was arrested and then was released. But in each case, the crimes were minor, um, uh, you know, petty misdemeanor or misdemeanor. And he was then released. And Alm said that's just not right. And that seemed to have triggered um, or may have triggered uh, his filing with the court that the court just approved yesterday. Yeah, well, it's interesting, though, because I imagine there'll be some accounting and then we'll have some hard data as to what exactly happened when they released these folks out on the street. That is going to be really interesting because there's been a long debate about whether or not Hawaii locks up too many people uh, and is too aggressive about holding them. Uh, the ju judiciary, um, under, under uh, an act by the legislature, has just created something called the Criminal Justice Research Institute. They're supposed to be researching this very question. What happened to these people after they were released, whether it be from the April or from the later order? And did they pose a serious threat to public safety? Or are the advocates, such as the ACLU, correct that we're locking up too many people? I think a lot of us are really eager to see what that data shows. All right. Okay. Thanks so much, uh, Kevin. Thank you for your time. And that was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his full story, visit civilbeat.org. is a $56 million industry in Hawaii. The disease first discovered in Sri Lanka has hit our shores and now stands to threaten the livelihood of many farmers if allowed to spread unchecked. The State Agriculture Department uh, has asked for emergency approval for a fungicide 
and it expects that will come any day now. We talked to Greg Takashima, Deputy Director of the state's pesticide branch, about how it's helping farmers learn how to use the chemical and where to get it. The Department of Agriculture, along with UHCTAR and the Cooperative Extension agents on the Big Island and throughout the state, we're putting together two free webinars for coffee growers to let them know that we have a possible fungicide for them to use against coffee leaf rust. And how bad is the problem getting? So the problem started on the Big Island, moved over to Maui, Lanai, and it is now on Oahu. The department does have inner island quarantine for specific coffee. They just passed a couple of rules uh, regarding quarantine for uh, different types of coffee going around the islands. The webinars that you're holding, it's an opportunity for our farmers to learn how to best apply this fungicide when it's approved? Yeah, so there are specifics to the pesticide, the fungicide. That specific fungicide that was requested for use is uh, called preaxorzemium. We'd go over personal protective equipment or PPE, the requirements, how to safely apply the pesticide, what to use and what not to use. So it'll be a kind of an overall educational experience for the coffee growers. And you expect the approvals to come on this, what, any day now? So the approvals, EPA has 45 days from submittal. We did submit the request back on March 16th. So that puts us out to April 30th at the latest. So it should come down any day now. Yeah, yeah, getting closer. (laughs) And the whole idea is that you want to be able to make sure these farmers are ready to go. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we'll... Basically, what's on the draft label um, is a federal law. So we go over what's required of them, what they can and can't do, what they have to have on their farms prior to using it. But, you know, we want the farmers to be as educated as possible. And is this fungicide readily available? I don't know how soon it might be here in Hawaii or if it's already on island. Yeah, so the fungicide is being brought in by several dealers this outreach campaign actually started with the dealers. So they are well aware of these rules and they're out there helping us spread the news as well. So is this fungicide very expensive? The average cost of it is about $500 per gallon, but one application only requires 7.14 fluid ounces per acre. So, you know, that one gallon will go pretty far. Is it diluted? Yes, you would have to dilute the 7.14 fluid ounces into 20 gallons of water per acre. So it's not like then it's going to be difficult to get this once no, their no, approvals yeah. are in. No, uh, no, We're making sure we're working with the distributors to ensure that there's enough for you know that, that initial demand because that initial demand will be pretty high, we're assuming. <laughs> Talk about the industry. I mean, how large is our coffee industry? Sure. So our coffee industry produces about $56 million in revenue for the state, and it is the second largest revenue-generating agricultural industry in the state. Coffee leaf rust was first discovered, I believe, in late October, and it was discovered on the Big Island. And then October and November, we found it in Maui. I believe December, early January, it was confirmed on Lanai, and then it did come over to the Manawili area initially in Oahu, and it was discovered there sometime in January, I believe. How do you think it's spreading? So the coffee leaf rust spreads via spores. Each rust section contains up to about 400,000 spores and you know they can spread via wind and natural processes like that. And so if it's especially windy? Yeah so windy weather. CLR thrives in humid 
somewhat moist conditions. So initially, it'll start off in the lower reaches of the plant. You know, you'll see some really noticeable yellow spots, and that's kind of why they call it coffee leaf rust, because these little spots look like rust on the bottom and the top of the leaves. So it'll start from the bottom, and then it'll slowly work its way up towards the top of the plant. And does it affect any other crop besides coffee? Nope. It is coffee-specific. And we don't know how it got here? No, we don't, unfortunately. We've started to do some tracing, but there's nothing that's been nailed down as of yet. Where is it particularly bad across the globe? Particularly bad, I do know in Costa Rica and some of the South American countries, if I remember correctly on some of our government calls, we've had upwards of 200 specific species of coffee leaf rust. I know, I think the Agriculture Board has taken up a request, I think, to bring in some other types of coffee that's resistant to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we're working with the growers via the board to get some of those rust-resistant coffee varietals approved. And there's some back and forth because it depends on how the coffee tastes, right? That's At the end of the day, we all drink coffee and how it tastes is a big reason on why we buy some of the coffee that we buy, right? So... All of that is being taken into consideration. And then anything more on the surveys? Because I know you put the word out amongst the farmers to start inspecting their plants and helping them know what to look for. Yeah. Uh, So luckily, thus far, we've only isolated it to those four islands, the Big Island, Maui, Lanai, and Oahu. Thus far, all of the surveys that showed up for Kauai and Molokai have not shown coffee leaf rust, luckily. That was Greg Takashima, Deputy Director of the State Agriculture's Pesticide Branch. Look for links to this afternoon's and the April 8th webinar on our website. Registration is required. And that's it for today. Noe Tanigawa will be joining you for an Aloha Friday show tomorrow. Give us some feedback. Got some questions about vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.